All right, good morning. Uh, let's get set up here. All right, so this morning, as Mark mentioned, I get to share with you about John Woolman. Now, I, I, hello to the folks online, but I am going to ask the room a question. Who here has ever heard of John Woolman? Yeah. And the Explore folks, you should have at least heard his name mentioned already. Um, but very few people actually know much about him. But he is quite a figure uh, in the abolitionist movement, meaning the, to, end, to work to end slavery. That's what he's best known for. He was in the 18th century. And I want to look at his life today a little bit with you, and hopefully we can learn something from it. Uh, but let me start first by reading a passage together with you all from Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Uh, Before we get into the meat and content of John Woolman's life, let me just give you just a little bit of background about his times and the kind of brief overview of John Woolman. So John Woolman, like I mentioned, uh, was born in 1720, and that's pre-United States of America. So the United States at the time were colonies of Great Britain. There was 13 of them. There was about 2.5 million people living in those 13 colonies, Uh, Benjamin Franklin was doing experiments with electricity and kites, and and it looks like children. And uh, and that's what was going on then, but there was no electricity in houses or towns at the time. Uh, Woolman was a Quaker, and the Quakers came from the Church of England and split away because they believed that you could hear directly from God without the need for church hierarchy, and you didn't need that mediated by the church. Individual believers had this direct access to the divine light and teaching of, of God in their lives. And they were called Quakers because they trembled in the way of the Lord, uh, physically in their meetings. At least that's where the name came from. They had a non-hierarchical structure, obviously, and they'd meet together in meetings of friends, as they called themselves, to hear from the Lord and share his word with one another. Uh, And obviously, to talk about John Woolman, we have to mention slavery, as that is a key element in in his life and narrative. And slavery was a very active institution in the Western world at the time, and actually in more than just the Western world. But the the African slave trade was in full swing, Slavery in the north where John Woolman lived was uh, less industrial than in the south. It was more um, slavery as household help as opposed to large-scale plantations like we're familiar with in the south. But nevertheless, slavery was common across all colonies and all parts of uh, uh, the U.S. colonies at the time. And sometimes we look back and we are shocked at how many good people and good Christians didn't recognize slavery for the evil that it was at the time. Um, And at Woolman's time, life, at Woolman's, when Woolman was alive, slavery was just an ingrained part of the world. Uh, In fact, slavery had been a part of most civilizations and cultures around the world uh, across time. And that makes Woolman's views on slavery as an abolitionist not only unusual for the white Europeans of his day, Um, But they were even unusual among his fellow Quakers who were devout Christ followers. Now, John Woolman himself was born in New Jersey in 1720 into a devout Quaker family. He worked for his father, a farmer, until he was 21, until he moved to a nearby town to pick up a trade. Uh, Around this time, he also started preaching in Quaker meetings. 
This was an unpaid role as the tradition of the Quakers, and so he started working as a tailor uh, to make uh, income for himself to supplement his ministry. Although his tailor trade grew very well and he had the chance to become quite profitable in it, he chose tailoring in part because he could scale it and he could be as busy as he wanted to be. And this allowed him time for prayer, study, silence, and ministry. Uh, He was an itinerant preacher who made several trips throughout the northern U.S. and then some trips even down further south. And that's where he did the majority of his ministry, traveling itinerantly around to these various Quaker meetings and sharing his message of the gospel and also of uh, anti-slaveholding. He also produced a journal detailing his spiritual journey and several essays against slaveholding, among other issues. And while best being known as an abolitionist, he also worked for more just relationships between the First Nations people and the government of the time, uh, amongst different social issues involving the poor and outcast. He traveled to England in 1772 to preach among the Quakers who lived there, and he did so before falling ill and dying in 1774, at the age of 54. Uh, Briefly to sum up the result of John Woolman's life, the Quakers officially condemned and banned slaveholding as a practice allowed among the brethren of Quakers more than 100 years before the Emancipation Proclamation within the United States proclaiming slavery illegal. Woolman is credited with being one of, if not the most influential people in that achievement. Now, how does this connect to us and our life? Well, like John Woolman, we live in a broken world. Uh, We live in a world with injustice, pain, and suffering, and brokenness. And this pain and injustice is often brought about by the hands of our fellow human beings. Sometimes unintentionally, but all too often intentionally. And the question, just like Woolman was faced with, is how do we respond to this broken world? And it seems to me that there's three principal postures offered to us by our culture today on how we can respond to brokenness in the world. Uh, The first is participation. We know there's injustice, we see there's injustice, and we leverage that injustice for our own benefit. I think we can all agree that this posture only inflicts more suffering and cannot be appropriate for anyone, let alone a Christ follower. Number two would be avoidance. Uh, We may even acknowledge the problem in our avoidance, but we believe ourselves impotent to affect any change. We shrug our shoulders, we shirk, we hide. Now, we may judge others, we may mumble about somebody else doing something about it. We might even post on Facebook about it, self-righteously. But we steer clear, however, from coming anywhere near the real problem or offering any constructive help. Avoidance is a posture that will allow the world's evils to continue on unchecked. Newton's first law of motion is that an object in motion will stay in motion. And so if we continually sidestep evil, what will stop it? And so then the third posture we're offered is that of activism. Now, activism would obviously seem to be, then, the right response. How else are we to see positive change in the world if we do not fight for it? How else will things get better if we do not identify the problems, develop a sound strategy, and work with great energy and force to be rid of the problems? Activists are the ones that bring the force to bear upon the injustice that is in motion. John Woolman is often referred to as an activist, but I actually think he'd strongly reject the title as activism is understood, taught, and practiced today. I think Woolman would help us identify a fourth way. But why wouldn't Woolman like being called an activist? What other means of change do we have? I want to explore with you briefly 
uh, I think why Woolman would take exception to modern day activism, and contrast that then with the life of John Woolman himself as a template for positive social change. Now, Saul Alinsky wrote a book in the 1960s called The Rules for Radicals. He's considered to be the father of modern day activism. He is a professor and community organizer who helped organize and shape uh, social movements in Chicago in the 30s to 60s. He died in the early 70s. Um, it's become the book that has helped shape and define efforts for social change and activism today. Now I have to give a few caveats here. Uh, the first is that Alinsky's approach does not define how all people see activism. People use the term differently. People who identify with activists would not necessarily agree with Alinsky. I acknowledge that. But it does seem to be the most common approach to activating social change in the world, and so I want to address it. And I will be cherry-picking a little bit from the book. I can't convey its contents in full, but the quotes I'm going to share with you do capture, I think, both the spirit uh, of his thoughts and also how they're being expressed in the world. Uh, Saul Alinsky was a champion for the outcasts, those who are on the fringes of society and without social or political power. His goal is to help those groups organize and fight for social change that would benefit the outcast group. He's also a self-proclaimed pragmatist, meaning that accomplishing the goal is the important thing, not the philosophical or ethical considerations in how to get there. To give you a little flavor of his approach, I'll read you a few quotes from his book. Number one, in the beginning, the organizer's first job is to create the issues or problems. Kind of interesting, rather than helping solve it, we need to uh, create it. Number two, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after people and not institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. Number three, Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. One's conflict with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's distance from the scene of conflict. The myth of altruism as a motivating factor in our behavior could arise and survive only in a society bundled in the sterile gauze of New England puritanism and Protestant morality and tied together with the ribbons of Madison Avenue public liberations. The myth of altruism is one of the great American fairy tales. The Prince was written by Machiavelli for the haves on how to hold on to power, if you're familiar with The Prince. Rules for Radicals is written for the have-nots on how to take it away. And then finally, and this last one I'll say, I don't think Alinsky believed in God nor the devil, but nevertheless, he attributes this book to lest we forget an, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. Uh, in essence, Alinsky promotes social change and the world for that matter as a zero-sum zero cynical power politics game. He had little time for ethics, but rather only on the practical tools that would accomplish the goals that he believed to be good. Change in his world can only come through force, and the type of force permissible is whatever is needed to accomplish the goals. But what is wrong with force? Do we not need to apply force to stop evil? And I suppose if evil were a physical object, maybe that would work. But evil is not. War, the ultimate use of force, may be justified to stop the cruelties and injustices of uh, a group like Nazis, 
But even in that case, war can only blunt the effects of evil. It can't undo evil. War can do nothing to transform the heart of man away from evil itself. Alinsky's approach to social change is based purely in power, not physical war, but social war. And it has no doubt proved effective in creating social change. But what kind of change? Will we, when the war for justice is won, have a more good, just, and beautiful world? What if the have-nots that Alinsky is fighting for win and take power, but have the same moral corruption as the currently powerful? What if this playbook that is being used today that promotes force, ridicule, division, and social violence simply beget more violence, pain, and suffering? Let me quote again from Galatians. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Modern-day activism, and I should say modern-day activism, this playbook has been used Uh, Alinsky was on the far left, but this playbook has been used by the far right um, as well, explicitly. Modern-day activism, it is taught in practice, is engaged in cynical power politics. It's sowing violence, shame, ridicule, and partisanship, and sometimes even physical violence in order to accomplish its goals. And this, to me then, leads all three postures that society offers us to be unacceptable. There's no path forward that's constructive for the Christian as those terms have been defined. But I believe John Woolman would point us to a fourth path, and his life points us to an entirely different orientation and way of engaging with the world. And I think he would call that fourth path something like the path of faithful obedience. Now, I'd like to juxtapose these two books. One is this real book written by Saul Alinsky, and this other one is not a real book, but I think it's the book John Woolman would write if he were here, and we asked him to write a book on positive social change, I think here's what he'd do. I think he'd call it, and I want you to check out my PowerPoint skills here, because I edited that nicely, okay. Uh, It would be called A Playbook for the Faithfully Obedient, rather than The Rules for Radicals. Now, what would be the content of this book, The Rules for Faithful Obedience by John Woolman? I think he'd have four major chapters, or four major themes that run throughout it. And the first and most central theme that he would point us to is that there can be no meaningful ministry for us if we do not cultivate a deep inner life with God. Now, this is true of Woolman's life. We know a lot about his spiritual life through his journal that he wrote. It's considered to be a spiritual classic of our modern era. He details both his journey and activities, but also conveys his inward spiritual journey in quite a bit of detail and depth. Woolman had his first memorable Uh, encounter with the divine love of God while reading Revelation chapter 22 um, while on the playground while his classmates played off in the distance at age seven. He grew up with religious curiosity but was also prone to what he calls wantonness and vanity in his youth. A significant moment occurred in his life while walking to a friend's house. There was a robin's nest up in a tree and the robin was agitated with him walking by. He picked up some rocks and started tossing them out of sport and after a time hit the robin and killed it. Initially pleased with his success, that pleasure turned into despair as he realized the innocent life he had taken. After much consideration, he climbed up the tree and took the baby birds and killed them as well, figuring it was better that they not suffer a slow death now that their mother was gone. He was deeply grieved at his own evil, and he was reminded of the proverb, even the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. 
Through incidents like this and others, he began to see his inner state of corruption more and more clearly. He slowly and unevenly began to search more after God and seek his help in achieving a transformation of his heart. Through this process, he lost friends that he previously engaged in wantonness with, but he found himself more in line with God's truth and enjoying the presence of God more and more. By his early 20s, he had come to the firm conclusion that slavery was incompatible with the Christian religion, which was no small matter given the culture and times he lived in. This occurred, as Woolman puts it, because of a divine encounter, because of the light revealed from the divine love in an encounter in his spiritual meditations and prayer. It was not logic or reason, but God's love and revelation that convinced Woolman of the evil of slavery. He says about it. About the 23rd year of my age, I had many fresh and heavenly openings. In respect to the care and providence of the Almighty over his creation in general, and over man as the most noble amongst those which are visible. Throughout his entire story, Woolman had a deep, at times anguished, at times blissful inner life, lived with God, that proved to be the source and foundation of his ministry and work. I believe if John Woolman were here this morning, he would tell us, should we desire to see positive change in our world? that our number one responsibility is to develop a deep inner life with God consisting of silence, repentance, worship, love, and communion. We can go no further if we have not done that first. Number two, I think his next chapter would um, be based around conviction and integrity of what God has shown you. Until we have made the movement internally to build a consistent life, we cannot yet address the world. His first decision moment in relation to slavery came when he was asked to, as a clerk, to write up a bill of sale for a slave. He was under the authority of his boss, and although he felt conflicted, he uh, he felt compelled to do so and did write the bill of sale. He reflected on this further, however, and he resolved to, and did from that time on, to excuse himself from any future sales, wills, or other legal matters involving slaves. From this point on, Woolman fully adopted a non-participation with evil approach to life. He would not benefit from, in any way he could help, the efforts of slavery. Woolman would not wear dyed clothes as the dyes were produced by slaves. Woolman, near the end of his life, even refused to travel by carriage or horse as he thought the treatment of animals was harsh and cruel. And remember, there was no car or train back then either, so he did many of his journeys on foot. Woolman strived to live a simple life as he saw that the pursuit of wealth and status would often thwart the increase of virtue and it was that pursuit of wealth that would lead to evil such as slavery and other types of oppression. Woolman lived a continual life of humility and simplicity in line with the revealed truth from God that he knew. His actions came from his convictions, not out of pragmatism, but his actions also would have a profound, on effect, a profound effect on those around him. During one of his travels, he preached a sermon against slavery in a rural community. He was then taken, home to, a, then taken to the home of a Quaker of high standing for dinner. When Woolman determined that the Negro servants were actually slaves in the house, he just quietly slipped out of the house without saying a word and did not return. The owner's conscience was so troubled that the next morning he vowed to liberate all his slaves. Woolman's second chapter of his book would tell us that if we wish to produce positive social change, we must first have integrity within our own life to our own convictions first. We must take the log out of our own eye before we set out to change everyone else. Woolman would be sure to remind us to hold our convictions humbly and allow them to be continually shaped by God's truth and love. 
I think Woolman's third chapter would emphasize for us the importance of obedience over strategy. While I believe Jesus, and likely John Woolman, could be or were brilliant strategic thinkers, this was not the basis or foundation for the success of their ministry or lives. For both of them, it was their obedience to the will of the Father, not cunning or strategy, that unleashed the power of God in the world. John Woolman, at a Quaker meeting, was eager to speak about the conditions and state of slaves. He found, as the meeting moved on, there was no appropriate opening for him to share his thoughts on the matter. He says, I found no engagement to speak concerning the slaves and therefore kept silence, finding by experience that to keep pace with the gentle motions of truth and never move but that as opens the way is necessary for the true servants of Jesus Christ. At the next meeting, he also found there was no openings and he grew inwardly anxious and restless and expressed to God through tears and inward supplication, but his mind was again settled on silence until God made the way. At the end of the meeting, a different Quaker rose up and expressed his concerns about the lack of care and education being provided to those held as slaves. It then led to a rousing and positive conversation about steps that could be taken and should be taken. Woolman was heartened and strengthened in his obedience in these moments. In this case, God's work was done without him saying a word, through his silence. But that is not to say that he did not speak boldly when the Holy Spirit made way for him. In one meeting, he rose up and said, Many slaves on the continent are oppressed and their cries have reached the ears of the Most High. Such is the purity and certainty of his judgments that he cannot be partial in our favor. In infinite love and goodness, he has opened our understandings from one time to another concerning our duty towards this people, and it is not a time for delay. Woolman was bold when necessary, and he was quiet when asked to be. He did not have a cunning strategy for dismantling slavery in his time, Woolman was simply obedient to the gentle motions of God and acted accordingly. He did not force his way in, but was bold when given the opportunity. Woolman did ministry with God, not just for God. I think he would end this chapter by encouraging us to do likewise, to rely on God's timing, direction, and movement, to be obedient in silence, obedient in action, obedient in word, to give up reliance on our own timetables, objectives, scheming, and strategies. Peter was ready to defend Jesus with the sword, but this was not God's way. Let us continually seek to move with the Spirit of God and his work in the world. And number four, and I think this might be his most controversial chapter, uh, is how he would emphasize and how he did emphasize love for both the oppressed and the oppressor. True love is indivisible. We cannot love God and hate our brother, and we cannot love the oppressor We cannot love the oppressed while we hate the oppressor. This is not to say that anger at injustice is wrong. Jesus certainly showed that to the Pharisees who were oppressing orphans and widows. But if we allow anger to turn to hate, we have, as Jesus tells us, committed murder. The glaring contrast of Woolman versus the modern-day activist is that Woolman was equally concerned with the soul of the oppressed and the oppressor, the slave and the slaveholder. During his travels, he would frequently meet and stay with slave owners. He would then spend his evening reasoning with the slave owners why the owning of slaves was incompatible with the Christian faith, harmful to the slaves, obviously, but harmful to their own souls. To see his approach more clearly, we can see that he, he, um, we can read his two essays on the matter. In his essays, he approached the issue through two major lenses. Number one, the obvious one, slavery is... Uh, and evil to those who are slaves and not fitting for any image bearer or children of God to be enslaved in such a fashion. But number two, 
but one that's not included in our modern discourse on injustice. Woolman argued heavily that slavery was a cancer to the soul of the slave owner. Owning slaves was harming their soul, and out of love for the slave owner as well as the slave, he pleaded for the practice to be ended. For love to be love, it must be applied to all parties, not just one or the other. We cannot love one if we hate the other. This stands in direct contrast to Alinsky's method for social change. His current model is seen today as identify the oppressor, stoke hatred towards them, isolate them, use that hatred to build up a powerful coalition to then mobilize enough power and social force to bring the oppressor or the target down, as Alinsky says. And Woolman's method could not be further from that. He would instruct us to love all God's children, to so love in all instances, to work for the redemption of the souls of those who use power against others, to work for the souls of those who are oppressed by others. And so the question for me and you is who is the modern-day slaveholder to us? Perhaps it's the racist or the white supremacist. Perhaps it's various bigots. Perhaps it's Jeff Bezos and other corporate titans. Perhaps it's pink pimps or sex traffickers. Perhaps it's left-wing radicals and Marxists or the Tea Party and the Trump supporters. Whoever it is to you that you hold contempt for, that you see as the enemy, woman would challenge you to shift that perspective to being children of God who are in need of God's love and in need of being in right relationship and right action with God for the sake of their own soul. Woman, I believe, from the moment he killed that innocent bird, knew he had no standing above anyone else in this world. He worked from a place of humility for the restoration and freedom of both slave and slaveholder. Let me conclude with just these few thoughts. Alinsky does not believe in God nor in the power of his Holy Spirit, and so he is left to maximize the power of the flesh. The flesh deals in power, violence, and contempt on its path to achieving its goal. Now, for us, there is no more corrosive attitude both to your own soul and my soul and to a society than that of contempt. If we sow in the flesh, we will reap corruption from the flesh. Let us do away with contempt for our brothers and sisters and see all our brothers and sisters through the eyes of pity, mercy, and grace, even while we work firmly and steadfastly for the things that God has revealed to us to correct and improve in this world. Woolman, however, intimately knew a good God and sought after him. Through this seeking, he was blessed with eyes to see evils that the others in his world could not. He acted in humble obedience. He moved with the gentle motions of truth and sought to share the love of God with both the oppressor and the oppressed. John Woolman lived in the Spirit, sowed in the Spirit, and reaped in the Spirit. What a different world we'd be if we had many more John Woolmans working for social change in such a manner. Uh, let me pray for us as we end this morning. Father, we thank you for this time to reflect on the life of one, life of one of your saints, John Woolman. We pray that you bring to our minds the things that are relevant for us today to correct, to submit to you, to shift and change our way of thinking about the world and about ourselves in it. We thank you that you are a God of grace and love and that you are also a God of justice and strength. And we pray that you help us wait on your timing and see the world through your eyes and adopt your, your approach to this world and your work in it. Help us be humble servants like John Woolman and partner with you in life and in ministry. Pray these things in your name. Amen.